If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. And John, this podcast, we're going to talk about the jamboree that is Davos. That's your jamboree. Every year you are the lizard king. I am the lizard king. I am am a wef shrill, as they say. (laughs) You you and Murdoch. Me and Murdoch. Look, I have been... As you know, to yes. the web. I mean, John, they were the only people, right? I, I'm going to come back and say. I would invite you. <laughs> the only people who ever gave me an award for anything or the World Economic Forum. No feckers in Ireland gave me an award for anything. They say, oh, your man doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about. At least the people from the World Economic Forum said, well, we recognize that you're trying to do something for economics and we're going to give you an award, which is much, much more than you'd ever get in Ireland. But they I, are the axis of evil, though. The axis of evil. It is funny how. Davos, the World Economic Forum, has become, in some circles, synonymous with conspiracy. Yes. Plutocracy. Government of neoliberals. I'm a neoliberal shrill. I always say I'm not a neo-anything. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a paleoliberal. I'm an old-fashioned liberal. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, you're neoliberal, you're this, that. The, I've always felt that, you know, what system delivered a country like Ireland a certain living standard was the combination of democracy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One man, one vote. And capitalism. Right? Yeah. And if that makes you neoliberals, if that makes you a liberal, it's basically it's a liberal democracy where the underlying economic engine is capitalism, not socialism or communism. Yeah. Right? That's where we live. Now, if Davos is the pinnacle of that it seems to me to get the underlying idea wrong. I mean, Davos basically is speed dating for overachievers, <laughs> right? And I'll tell you that's what it is, right? Because basically you have all these people you want to meet there, okay, you want to talk yeah. to. It's like speed dating. Yeah, yeah. And people just talk at you, right? And you kind of think, oh, they're very interesting, whatever. But it is. And, it, and of course there is. But, a, there, but the interesting thing is that let's say we do something like this for a living, right? Hosting a well, podcast. Do. Like, does the listener want the host of the podcast to be sitting in a box room writing screeds against things? Or do they want to be the person who actually has an access to these things if they want to go? Yeah. I think it's better to know these people. It's better to meet these people. It's better to have access to, or at least the chance of engaging with 
you know, political leaders, business leaders, whatever, because that's what gives you insight. But what actually happens at Davos? That's right, so it's, it's the speed dating for overachievers. <laughs> so you arrive, okay, so, so okay, I'll tell you that, so Davos is, and we're going to be talking to Jumana Bersacci in a couple of minutes, who is CNBC's anchor, and she's just left Davos. So she can tell yeah. us everything that's happening this year. Because it is important to know what those people who are making decisions are thinking about the world. Yeah. Otherwise, you're in a vacuum. Right. So I'll tell you what it's like. So Davos, the town, is the southwestern part of Switzerland. It's a canton called Graubunden. Right. Where they speak Romansh, John. Now, this is very interesting. So Switzerland has four languages. Yeah. French. Yeah. German, obviously, the dominant one. Yeah. French. Italian. There's a lot of Italian speakers. Yeah, of course. Speakers, yeah, yeah. But they have their own language called Romansh, which is basically comes from the Romans, right? It's a language that, you know, when Hannibal... It's very Latin, is it? Han- yeah, but when Hannibal crossed the Alps, yeah. this is the language the Helvetians spoke, which right. is amazing. Okay, yeah, so it's yeah. a combination of Old Swiss, a bit of Latin... You know, and tell you who actually speaks... And elephant stuff. Tell you, and elephants, <laughs> and elephant stuff. i tell you who speaks a language very like it. Giorgio Moroder. Oh! So Giorgio Moroder is from a little small part of South Tyrol, yeah. where they speak Ladin, right? Right. So they have German, Italian, but they've got their own language. Ladin? I've yeah, never heard yeah, this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about 35,000 people speak it, right? Right. And Giorgio Moroder is one of them. Okay. And the interesting thing is that in German, the word for translator is dolmetscher, okay? Right. Well, Übersetzer is the actual official word, but the slang word is dolmetscher, which means somebody from the Dolomites, because the people from the Dolomites right. lived okay. on this intersection, the Slav world, the German world, the Latin world. They spoke all these languages. Right. So they were translators. They were natural translators. And Giorgio, or Ma, Giorgio Moroda's people are dolmetschers. And Germans regard them as natural translators. And it's the same thing for the Swiss who live around right. this canton. This episode is brought to you by Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you got me going on this. I'm, I'm off. I'm off on one. I'm off on one. Come back to the Davos thing. So my thing in Davos was, was bonkers. I was only there once, right? It was 2007, ages ago, right? Yeah, yeah. And I got this award. And that's where I met Martine. Ah, yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Martin and I met and he was like, I don't know, let's just go for a beer and have a chat. Martin like, being the finance minister or ex-finance minister of Argentina. Exactly, just, just exactly. Just put it into context. Yeah. So, but what happens is that all the really swanky pants people, right, who go from the big companies who pay 25 grand. So I got, we got <laughs> in there for free, Martin and I. We yeah. were like third class citizens. We were like the people, when we were talking about the city of Dresden boat to Argentina, <laughs> And we were like the people yeah. in the hole, right? <laughs> and so much so that we couldn't find a hotel that we could afford. Right. Because it was really expensive. It was like two grand, a grand, whatever. You know, because all the big companies pay. Yeah. Them. So I, they, I wouldn't, they wouldn't pay your hotel bill. They wouldn't pay anything. They, would, they just gave us an award. Martin and Jeez. I came. We came on Ryanair. Anyway, <laughs> uh, to Basel, we did. Ryanair right. flight to Basel, right? Uh, but anyway, the long and the short was I stayed in a place called Wiesen, which is about 20 miles away. Mm. in a tiny little hotel, which was grand. It was just me and the Swiss army. <laughs> and the, the, it was me and the, the conscripts yeah. who were manning all the things. But I mean, what is interesting is you go and you see and you can listen to almost anything, right? There's talks on almost anything. Mm. And I was just sitting there really taking notes, very interested in economics, politics, science, technology, the whole gamut. Also, you can go to dinners there. And I'd never met a Bagwan, John. 
Right. You know, a proper Indian yeah. guru, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to dinner with an Indian guru, which was just great. I'd never been to, and your man's talking about oneness and the infinity and the void and all this great stuff. So there's a there's a really bizarre Did carnival. he pay 25 grand to go there? No. <laughs> so basically only people, corporate people pay 25 right. grand. So the rest of us go there as entertainment, right? right. For the corporate people. Dance for me, David. Dance yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Do that trapeze for me. That, <laughs> But, so there is a, there is a a huge variety of things that go on, right? The criticism, which is legitimate, is the following, and it goes back to the twenty five grand or the fifty mm. grand, right? Which is, if you can pay fifty grand, right, then you do have access in the same room to politicians. So there is approximation between wealth and influence. But the question is, are you actually influencing? Are they influencing? I mean, right. do you want to pay fifty grand? to listen to our f- new finance minister, Michael McGrath? No. Jesus, no. Exactly. Exactly. So we, You can hear him on the radio anytime. On the wireless. Exactly. The wireless, yeah. Exactly. But my, my point is, like, what is interesting about Davos is people forget that Mandela and de Klerk first met at Davos. Right. right. Okay. They first met at Davos. Davos created, you know, they call it a safe space for these mm. guys. So they first met there. But they had never met before which is kind of extraordinary. Yeah. All NGOs, Oxfam, the One Foundation, all the big NGOs, all the big environmental movements, all mm. the big poverty eradication movements, they're all there. Yeah. So it's not... All the economic development. All the crisis. economic development, the World Bank, all these people. But I mean, when I come to, you know, like, like real NGOs, people who are working in the field are there. Yeah. And the reason they are there is that the way in which charity works now is that wealthy people, like it or not, contribute to charities. So yeah. the charities have to discuss well, They can't with survive without them. Exactly. And it's all that ESG, that, you know, environmental, social mm. movement and governance movement, you see. So there is a soft side to it. And what I would say to the people who are against Davos, and I think their concerns can in some way be legitimate because some people are legitimately afraid of and fear the approximation between big business and government. And I understand that. Absolutely, yeah. And that makes a huge difference because that's where lobbying goes on and that's what's destroyed American democracy in Mm. a way. It's at 16th Street, that lobby street in Washington, where basically all American, I think it was somebody once said, you know, the the, the Republicans are always for sale, the Democrats are only for rent. But it's the (laughs) whole idea, you know, that, so so there is that that worry legitimate. But I also think that there has an illegitimate or bizarre confluence of anti-everything people who have decided the World Economic Forum is the worst institute in the world. Yeah. Rather than something like the Kremlin, which is actually killing people on a daily basis. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, think about it. It's actually killing people, right? And they kind of got kind of anti-vaxxers, anti-NATO, pro-Putin, extreme right, extreme left coming together. Yeah. A lot of our crypto friends are in, in that sort of world as well. And for them, you know, the worst thing in the world is a meeting in Switzerland rather than what I would say is an army blowing the shit out of citizens in Ukraine. I would say that's quite obviously worse. But I come back to one thing. What has created prosperity in the world is this combination of liberalism, liberal democracy, and capitalism. No other system has ever generated prosperity like it. That's the fact. For the few, though. No, but for the many, if you think like, if you think about all of us, think about us, mm. right? 
right? Think about Irish people, right? You know, that fusion of capitalism and democracy oh, no, I, I, gives you education, gives you toothpaste, yeah, gives r- you r- takeaway pizzas, yeah, gives you iPhones, gives you technology, gives you insurance. Look, think about everything that we have. But there's also a product big of- swathes of the world that don't have toothpaste, takeaway pizzas, iPhones. That's what I'm saying. So they need more capitalism. This is what creates it. This is what creates mm. the. We come back to Schumpeter. The dynamic of economic innovation is created by people trying to put their heads together to create the best design of something, right? And thus far, all other systems, whether they're feudalism, yeah. autocracies, communism, they've all kind of gone by the wayside. So not the best system. Remember, I've always said you could never, ever let the best bully the good, right? Yeah. And that comes from Gramsci, who is an Italian communist. Yeah, yeah. But the idea is that we progress innovation by innovation. That's what I believe drives the world. And as of yet, the best system to do that is a system where people are free to vote, free to invest, free to work, and free to back themselves in whatever market they're in. Yeah. All other systems have proven not to be able to deliver. So what I'm saying is it's not the ideal system, but it's the best one we have. Mm. And capitalism has got a tendency, this goes back to your point, yeah. it's got a tendency to enrich the few. That's the inbuilt dynamic of capitalism. Yeah. Democracy is the counterbalance. So if you think democracy is one man, one vote, that's the essential nature of democracy. And if you think capitalism is rich man, lots of votes, right? Yeah. So the rich guy gets more. Yeah. Yeah. Democracy is the counterbalance that when capitalism gets too extreme, which we may well be here now, democracy causes the pendulum to swing back. So the one man, one vote, which is biased towards or jaundiced towards equality, Mm. will always bend that arc of capitalism which is jaundiced towards inequality. But even within that, the products that are created, the experiences that are created, the lifestyle that is generated by that fusion of capitalism and democracy seems to me to be far superior to any other system we've tried, both in the ancient world and in the modern world. Is Davos the pinnacle of that system? No. And the anti-Davos people are right to say democracy is undermined by the proximity of big business to politicians, right? Mm. And if Davos represents that, that's a legitimate criticism. But the other opportunity in Davos is the fact that lots and lots of NGOs, people with the right attitude to life, people who are trying to reduce inequality, trying to develop the world, go there to talk to those who have power. Because Mm. ultimately, there's no point talking to the powerless if you want to change them. You've always got to talk to the willing if you want to change something, I believe. Not the unwilling, number one. And the willing who can affect change, you know, talk to them. That's, you know, is it better to be in the tent pissing out or outside the tent pissing in? Absolutely. So what were the big topics of this year's Davos? Well, why don't we go to Jumana Versace? She's in Davos. She's just back from Davos. And let's ask her. Just a couple of days ago, the biggest jamboree, one of the biggest jamborees in the world, Davos, ended. And people who've listened to the podcast will know that many, many years ago, 
the people at Davos decided to benight me, one of those young global leaders, as my kids always said, Dad, you weren't young, you're certainly not global, and you can't lead yourself out of anywhere. <laughs> so this is a misnomer. But it was an interesting time. It was many years ago. It was about 2006, 2007. I haven't been there since. But it is a fascinating insight into politics, economics, big corporate power, interesting people, powerful people, how they come together, what they say, what they think. And our next guest, Jumana Bersacci, who you will have known, was chatting to me about the British guilt crisis a couple of months ago, <laughs> was there for the last... I've recovered, week. thankfully. I've recovered from the British, the great British guilt crisis. Exactly. I love it. It's, it's always great when a Lebanese person is discussing a crisis in the UK over their ability to borrow. It's a sort of thing of beauty. How are you? Right, good to see course. you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's been quite it? the week. Yeah, you were, you were, you did, what you, you told me you did 40 interviews. Yeah, wow. I did 40, four zero solo interviews, one-on-one. And a, cu- a couple of panels. It, it was incredible. Look, if I had to describe it in one word, I would say I have come away feeling incredibly inspired, David. Okay. And I know that is not that is not the word that people would tend to associate with Davos, but that is how I felt walking away from it. There are loads of people out there doing amazing things. And Davos is really a place, the World Economic Forum is a place where you get the opportunity for private and public sector to come together. Tell me what goes on. What's the layout? How does it all work? You know, yeah. what's the town yeah. like? Where are we? We're we're up at very high altitude. <laughs> we're in the Alps. Yeah. You, so you're very high up, and the reason I can say you're very high up because if you walk up one flight of stairs, you're breathless, uh, which which can be problematic if you're on air five seconds later. It did happen to me. Uh, so you're in this beautiful mountain town, and for two weeks of the year, it gets taken over by the World Economic Forum. People fly in from all over the world and they rent out all the hotels, apartments, etc. congregate together to come to the Congress Center, which is the building right at the center of it all. And to get into the building, you need to have your pass. So as long as you have that pass, you can go inside. And within the Congress Center on any given day, they will have dozens and dozens of panels and breakout rooms going on on various topics, whatever you're interested in. There are sessions on climate change, on food security, on robotics, on AI, on scientists presenting new work. There was one panel, I wasn't able to go, but there was this massive breakthrough in nuclear fusion that came out a month ago. I'm by no means an expert at all, but you know that is a very promising technology. And you had the science scientists there actually in a room discussing what this means and how quickly we can get it wow. up and running. There are sessions on the economy, on monetary policy, on what China's up to. You know, so there's so many different things that you can, you have the choice of where you want to go. Also, I want to say, a friend of mine, I bumped into her at the airport yesterday. All of the journalists were coming back on the same flight. But a friend of mine runs Arabia TV, the Arabic channel, yep. and she's based in London. And she was hosting, she was telling me she was hosting panels with Iranian human rights activists. She had, you know, lady activists that that she was having several panels with. So, I think it it's really important to look at the World Economic Forum within that context as well, because it is giving a platform for so many different people to come and raise their voices. So that's what happens inside the Congress Center. And then outside, there's this thing called, there's a street called the Promenade, okay. which in normal times is just like a, a normal street. It's like the high street. But around Davos, many companies and organizations will rent out what I guess the rest of the year are normal shops. And so you walk down the street and it's this bizarre situation because you've got like 
Meta-sponsored offers on the left and then Palantir-sponsored offers on the right. And you just keep walking down and you can just sort of wander into all of these companies. But this year there was Ukraine House and a friend of mine who used to back in the day actually be the trade minister of Ukraine invited me to come and, 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 and take a look at Ukraine House. So I took some time out. I made sure I had an hour, one of my afternoons to go inside Ukraine House. And first of all, let me tell you, it was absolutely packed. And second, it was this huge moment of sobriety amidst everything that was going on. I know you were just there and, you know, perhaps we can talk about this, but they had video images. They had film representation of what had been going on there. Bringing that and the huge grotesqueness of what is happening in Kiev across all of Ukraine to Davos yep. and making sure that people watch it. That's quite powerful. No, it is quite, you know, A, it's quite powerful and B, I mean, we can discuss the, the World Economic Forum in a little bit. And I mean, I, I think that there's a huge amount of incoming criticism of the WEF. I can see where it comes from. I don't really get the whole thing. It's, it's It seems to me in part of the conspiracy theories. There's a sort of a weird overlap between conspiracy theories, anti-vaxxers, pro-Putiners, all sorts of people. And, and, the, and the WEF seems to be one of the areas are one of the events that they have decided is the giant lizard. But let's 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 park that. Mm. I want you to tell me at the World Economic Forum you've got the most powerful politicians, the most powerful members of the business community, thought leaders, ideas people, as you said, scientists. What was the mood like? Because the mood is very important to see. Yeah. The decision makers of the world, right? Where who mm. are there? What are they thinking? What's the mood like? So Number one, top of mind is Ukraine, and it has to be, and it is important that it came up in all conversations. And I, I really do need to say that. I personally interviewed the presidents of Lithuania and Latvia, which was very interesting because they're part of the eastern flank of NATO. And I think they were consistent along other countries within Europe and also Western Europe and that Ukraine continues to need military assistance, but they need more strong weapons, they need tanks, they need surface-to-air missiles, that sort of thing. And that's an ongoing debate, how much military assistance is needed for Ukraine, who is it going to come from, and also the extent of the economic assistance that they need that is coming via Europe, via institutions like EBRD as well. Over the course of the year, EBRD provided, I think, over one and a half billion euros worth of loans to Ukraine for reconstruction. But of course, the issue there now is that you know, Russia bombed the security system and then Ukraine have to reconstruct it and then they bomb it again. So it's kind of, you know, you're racing against time. So that was a really big theme. And I know you were just in Kiev and, and that's why I was bringing it up. And I thought it was really powerful that right at the very end of the World Economic Forum, you had the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire. He was on one of our CNBC panels and he said to whole audience, Putin is not going to win this war and we will stand united and we'll, we, will, we will do whatever it takes for Ukraine to win this war. So Ukraine front and center. In terms of the moods, I think there was a feeling that we are going through an almost an unprecedented time in terms of how many shocks the global economy has had to deal with. Yes. Of course, the, the, the Ukrainian war has had an impact on energy prices, which we spent all of 2022 talking about. But there's also a climate crisis, there's a food security crisis, there was a supply chain crisis as well that's still coming back from the pandemic. And so all of these things are happening at the same time. And that is why 
you need to have a forum like this to have people come together, the greatest minds across all of these different industries and think about, okay, what solutions do we need? How do we go about tackling some of these issues? One thing that did strike me though, David, is people are slightly less bearish than I thought they were going to be just in general about the economy. Okay, let's explore that because you've been talking to a lot of finance ministers, you've been talking to a lot of economists, you've been talking to a lot of thinkers. Explore that a wee bit because going into 2023, Certainly coming out of 2022, the mood has been interest rates are going to rise. They're going to rise rapidly. Inflation may well not come down. There's a cleave between the United States and China. Geopolitically, of course, there is Russia, Ukraine. There is a general sense supply chains are gummed up still. And we notice even this morning in Ireland, a lot of the tech companies over the weekend in Ireland, tech companies are laying off people. There's a real sense of the good times that were there from Let's say it's it's weird to talk about the good times about the pandemic, but in actual economically, they were actually expansionary times. That's over and we're into different. But you're saying maybe this mood was a little bit less bearish, less worried. Absolutely. Definitely less bearish. I wouldn't say it's optimistic, but it's definitely not as bad as people thought it was going to be a few months ago. Namely, really, because Europe has actually done better. You see the fourth quarter GDP numbers for Germany indicating that they actually might have been able to to skirt this recession. Probably, I mean, it's around 0%. It's not great, of course. It could be minus 0.1 or plus 0.1. At this point, it doesn't really matter because, you know, the theme is obviously a moderation yeah. of growth. But but it's not a recession. We're not talking about a no, recession. No, it's not a recession. We're not talking about several quarters of a prolonged deep recession. We're talking about short and shallow, a short and shallow contraction. And, and that, I think, is a big development in the right direction from where we were a couple of months ago. Number two, huge swing factor for where 2023 ends up going, and it probably will end up being the biggest story of the year, is China. And that came up in all of our conversations because it was not so long ago, just before Christmas, that Chinese authorities made the decision to finally open up the economy. And then it's going to have ramifications across everything from commodities to demand for you know energy, of course, in the, in the latter half of the year, demand for raw materials, for construction, for flows into emerging markets. You know, people are saying that emerging markets for so long, well, the past couple of years, India has sort of been the place where EM investors have gone to because of the growth story there. You could see a rotation of those funds away from the likes of India back into China again. And I think people are really getting bulled up on the China story. And the view the, there, though, just, is... I interrupt mm. you, the Chinese were there. Uh, the Chinese were quite senior members not, were there. Or only was it, the, the vice president, Lu He, was there. Okay. I would not say there was a huge representation. There was not. But the vice president did show up at the beginning of the conference. And he gave a speech, by the way, where he talked about three principles. The first was their desire to sort of boost the economy. So they're very much focused on lifting economies, growth levels, but by the way, this came on the heels of China's calendar year growth for 2022 coming in at 3%. Remember, this is an economy that used to grow at 6 last and year grew at 12, at even, even 10 oh, years of back. Of course, yeah. even before, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so there is an understanding, I've read a few analyst notes since that speech, that they probably will try to get back to that 6%, 5.5%, level. So twice as much in 2023 again. So that could be a major swing factor. The second thing he talked about is boosting the property sector. Property sector is such a huge part of the Chinese growth story. And because of Evergrande and, and all of the things that went down last year, there was a bit of a crackdown of that space by the authorities. And they said to the world, well, we're going to start loosening some of our property restrictions. So that's, I guess, interesting as well from a commodities perspective. And then the third thing he said is 
Common Prosperity, which is basically their code for cracking down on tech companies for anti-competitive practices, has now become a long-term goal. And so remember, if you look at the performance of some of these tech stocks, we've talked a lot about US tech and NASDAQ, but Chinese tech stocks got annihilated in 2022. And they were annihilated by by their own government. This is the weird thing. Exactly. And some of the geopolitical issues with the US as well, yeah. you know, the likes of Huawei not being able to source key components, etc. So I think China is going to be a really big story. I asked about it a lot in a lot of my interviews, and people do think that China will provide an inflationary impulse. There was some debate as to whether it would be disinflationary or inflationary. Disinflationary because it means that perhaps some of the supply bottlenecks that existed might start coming down just because there are more Chinese back online again, you know, more yeah. workers at the port and, and so forth. Open, yeah. But to be honest, most of those issues had resolved themselves anyway. So I was looking at The Economist a few weeks ago. All of the shipping costs that the supply chain issues and shipping are actually back to normal again. So my view is when China does come back online properly and in full force, it probably will provide a bit of an inflationary impulse to commodities Why is that relevant, David? Well, I'm going to come back to Europe again. I could talk forever about this, but I think it is is, great (laughs) great stuff. No, because I always Um, think it's, you know, what's always fascinating is uh, when you sit down with people and it's fresh in your mind and you people are making decisions and you're absorbing all that stuff. And as you said, you're sitting there in Davos, you're absorbing all day, every day. You're having conversations with people you wouldn't have before. You're bumping into people you'd never meet before. They're offering you bits and pieces of little nuggets and insights. So unburden yourself, Jumana, unburden yourself. Okay, well, let me give you one piece of nugget, uh, a little nugget that I got that that really stuck with me. I spoke to the head of IEA, Fatih Birol, that's the International Energy Agency. And they've done a lot of work, of course, on anything energy related, be it fossil fuels, investment in uh, green infrastructure, green investments, technology, what's required out of the transition, etc., And I asked him, look, Europe so far seems to kind of like made it through this winter. It's pretty impressive. They've they've managed to almost fully diversify away from from Russian gas, almost is the key word here. And, you know, so far the the winter has been pretty mild. Storage levels have held up and and it's really not been as bad as as we thought it was going to be. How's winter 23, 24 going to look? He said, well, I think it's going to be more challenging. And let me tell you why there are three reasons. Number one, China's coming back to the market. And so one of the reasons that the Europeans were able to source all of this new LNG or alternative sources of LNG from Algeria, from the US, from Qatar, is because China wasn't there asking for it as well. So there's going to be competition with China over sourcing those supplies of LNG in the second half of the year. The second thing is there aren't any new sources of LNG coming to the market. So the pie stays the same size, but you've got another elephant in the room this time and it's China. And the third thing is he says, we're still not 100% off Russian gas. People don't, they often fail to remember this. And given the situation with Russia, given there's a second round of embargo on oil products coming through in February, it's very likely they're going to cut European continent off completely. So that's another source gone to. So I feel like the outlook from an energy perspective into 23-24 is a little more bleak. That's interesting because again, I think, I think lots of people say we were actually quite lucky because the winter has been so mild. Germany seemed to be able to wean itself off Russia very, very quickly, much quicker than people expected. And in Mm -hmm. general, in the last couple of weeks, energy prices have been falling. I've heard people in 
here in Ireland and the UK saying energy prices are falling, my energy bills are not falling. And I think the issue yeah. is we're, we're kind of paying energy bills now for gas that was actually charged in October, November. Yeah. And that's yeah. incredibly expensive. So you're saying the mood is quite, not upbeat, but less bearish. In less terms bearish, of, yeah. Before we go, in terms of synthesize, Juman, if you, mm. you can, you know, yeah. what was the most, would you say, interesting things you heard, fascinating things you heard, Things that you thought, mm, that's quite different. I hadn't, I hadn't quite well, expected that. Just before we do that, I do want to say one thing as well, because we've been talking about the economy and 2022 was a big year for inflation. Obviously, it reared its ugly head. I listened to the podcast that you did about, you know, inflation is is the guest that nobody wants and it shows up uninvited at the party. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, how do we get rid of this guest, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he sticks uh, and, uh, he sticks around. He sticks around in the corner. Yeah, He's yeah, very yeah. sticky. He's sticky. <laughs> and uh, one thing that struck me is the central bankers, and I I spoke to several of them, are still extremely hawkish. They are not going to let down in this fight against inflation. The view is that it's going to be quite easy, quote unquote, for inflation to go from 10 to 4. But the real challenge is getting it from 4 to 2. And to do that, you have to stay restrictive on interest rate policy for perhaps longer than the market is anticipating. On my final day yesterday, I moderated a panel literally called the Future of Monetary Policy. Ah, uh, you the, see, you, now you've uh, got me. Now you've got me. Go on, go for it. <laughs> and and I had the uh, I had the chairman of SNB, so the Swiss National Bank. I had the central bank governor of Peru in it, Larry Summers, and then I had the CEO of ENB, one of the largest Norwegian banks on the panel. All of them were of the view that in one year's time, interest rates will be tighter than where they are right now. So that's something to bear in mind. And I think that also that, I didn't expect is, that. is a very me neither. I didn't expect that either. I didn't because of the economic situation, but because I guess the economy is kind of doing okay, they feel vindicated in this fight against inflation. And actually in one of the other panels, Larry Summers said the biggest mistake we could ever make, you know, policymakers could make right now is to deal insufficiently with inflation, because if we don't, it creates a whole host of other issues and it will just, you know, keep dragging on and have much broader ramifications on on the economy that we are unaware of right now. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. So you're saying that the central bankers are, are saying we are going to keep interest rates higher for longer and yes. for as long as it yeah. takes. And we are wedded Absolutely. to this 2% target. I'm, John and I might discuss this uh, uh, afterwards. We're wedded to this 2% because this is huge ramifications for... First of all, even people's mortgages, people who are listening to the show who are like, they don't, you know, finance all that sort of stuff. That's that's. I'm interested in it from a conceptual point of view, but what does it mean for me? It's, it's mortgages, right. it's availability of credit, it's all these, it's, it's being able to refinance loans, all that sort of stuff. So you're saying the central bankers are more hawkish than, let's say, the business people? Yeah, yeah. Because they've got, to quote the very famous Jean-Claude Trichet, they've got one needle in their compass. And, and right now the focus is bringing that inflation back to target. Because it's not just, I mean, I can get a bit, you know, wonkish here, but it's not just about bringing spot inflation to target. It's about controlling people's expectations of where they think inflation is going to get to. And and that's how central bankers think about it. They have to ensure that five years ahead, 10 years ahead, people are not thinking or assuming that inflation is going to stay at 4%. They, they want inflation expectations to get anchored as well. well I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about Trichet, John, in a minute possibly the man in a position of power who understood less about the economy than anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> Trichet was the man who, during the European debt crisis, decided to raise interest rates. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I would say 
in the great French tradition of depositing your best bureaucrats in the IMF and the ECB. You know, the French are great at that, okay? You know, you have the all the way, the World Bank, that's what the French do. It's, it's part of their, their, <laughs> their power play. And uh, I would say the Trichet, a man who didn't cover himself in glory, even as French central bank mm. governor in the 90s on the way into the euro and then kicked upstairs. But we'll come back to, but Jumana, just before you go, so your sense was that at Davos, the mood was better and central bankers could be out of step with the rest of the business community, you think, over the course of the next year? Because that in itself throws up all sorts of interesting angles. Mm, yeah, I, I wouldn't quite say they're they're out of step. I think they've been pretty consistent with their messaging. So the business communities kind of know where the central banks are at. I would say probably markets like, you know, investor markets, financial markets are underestimating how hawkish central banks are. But, you know, China, again, is, is going to be a big story. And I think everyone is watching to see how this is going to evolve and what sort of impact China coming back to the market has. One final thing I do want to mention, because it is important, you know, we have been through an energy crisis. And if you look at global emissions, CO2 emissions, this is a whole different topic, but it is important. CO2 emissions last year surpassed those of 2019, actually the largest year for CO2 emissions ever. Okay. So we're moving in the wrong direction. And I think there was this, you know, moment of reflection where it's like, well, how do you square up your long-term environmental objectives of, you know, reducing your emissions, but at the same time, emissions keep moving higher and higher. We're not moving in the right direction. And so there was a lot of talk about that. And the takeaway there, this is obviously part of a much bigger discussion, but I do want to end with this, is that the transition is happening. It probably isn't happening fast enough, but there are so many people out there coming up with these amazing green tech solutions. What's required right now is the investment to help bring it to scale and help to come up with all of the storage solutions that are required. So the, the actual product is there. You just need scalability. And one final number that I'm going to leave with you is I asked the CEO of a renewables company in the US, what is required in terms of investment? He said, it's very simple. What we're investing every year in fossil fuels, we need to be investing every year into renewables. And that's about, I think, one and a half trillion dollars. Wow. Yeah. And we could also end on the idea that central bankers have a role in this, which is that if central bankers decide to preference companies in green technology in terms of even using their bonds in what we would call unusual monetary policy to actually mm. get finance, that could actually happen. Central bankers have a role over and above. Well, it's funny because another big theme was the, the US had introduced this Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't do anything which it says on the 10. It's not really an Inflation Reduction Act, but what it does do is it provides hundreds of billions of subsidies towards green tech investments. And the Europeans have been quite critical of this piece of legislation from the Biden administration saying it's unfair and they you know, potentially could have been taken to the WTO because the US was going down the route of providing unfair subsidies versus other countries and, and doing it alone. But the, the feeling out there is that the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is probably the best piece of legislation to happen for Europe, because all of a sudden now, all of the European leaders are saying, well, we want to encourage more investments into green, et cetera. We want to be competitive as well. So how can we do it? Well, maybe we have to relax state aid rules. Maybe we have to reduce some of the bureaucracy when getting these types of investments approved. 
maybe we'll have to borrow a bit more. And I think that is going to be at a policymaker level, one of the key discussions this year on how Europe can respond to what the US are doing. And of course, China as well, with their massive, massive push into decarbonization in the coming years. It's, it's a geopolitical question. Brilliant stuff. Listen, Jumana, we're going to be discussing this green transition and, and how we how we get there, because it's interesting. Once you get these immediate dilemmas, problems like Ukraine and Russia, suddenly climate change gets pushed to the back as a discussion. And now what you're saying is, hold on a second, this is still the biggest issue. Climate change is still a, the big global issue. And yeah, uh, we, yeah. we'll, we'll take that up. But listen, Jumana, right. thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thanks. So there you have it. Davos. There you have it. 2023. Well, let's just pick apart some of the big topics of this year. Okay. Just after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jumana was talking there about a bit of a, a difference between big business being less bearish but central banks being quite hawkish. And a lot of the stuff that I've been reading over the last while, I'm getting a lot of mixed messages. All the noise, John. All, All the noise, no signal. That's, that's like, what it is. That's your head is melted. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. But it's the fact that, for instance, gas prices are at their all-time low for 16 months. Yeah. Yet food prices are still increasing. Yeah. And that's all to do with lags. So, So basically... What we don't appreciate sometimes is that we eat fossil fuels. I know it sounds yes. weird, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, we use so much. The green revolution that happened in the 70s wasn't really a revolution. It was just an intensification of using petrochemicals in producing food, mm. right? So that's why we got much more abundant yields, much more abundant. So that's why when Paul Ehrlich and those people said the world's population was going to collapse in the 70s. They were completely wrong. The world population grew because of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was a fossil fuel revolution. So you're absolutely right. So when petrol prices go up, food prices go up, but they go up with a lag. Right. A, a number of months. And the reason yeah, is, yeah. basically, we are paying now, today, in our food prices, 
for the price of fossil fuels about six to nine weeks ago. Right? Nine weeks ago. Yeah, so okay. maybe a month, two months or two and a half months or whatever, right. right? So as you said, food prices are continuing to rise primarily because the input cost of making those foods spiked up yeah. about three months ago. Food prices will come down but th- as as petrol prices and gas prices come down. Okay, and so if that's the case, I, I understand that. I understand the logic of that. But why then are the central banks now, still now. following this? If Are they not taking into consideration this the lag? central banks are bullshitting. Okay? Ooh. So basically the central that's banks... That's fight and talk, man. That's fight and talk. For the central banks, central bankers' entire legitimacy was based on their assertion that they and only they could control inflation. Do you remember that? that yeah, was their whole yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Inflation then gets out of control. They can't control it. Suddenly, they are swimming in the nude with small mickeys. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. What they're doing now... It must be cold water. Very cold. Oh, so it's only three degrees out there, <laughs> right? Very, very cold. But what they're doing now is they're getting all macho after the fight. They're, they're like the fellow who's all macho after being slapped around. <laughs> yeah. You remember when Conor, Mc- had a, remember had when, when Conor McGregor got slapped around by some fella that the, the Ruslan Adam officer, I'll have you after. Yeah. He said, no, you're meant to have him there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly. So it's the same sort of idea, right? Is that the central bankers have been exposed as spoofers, that they don't control inflation. Inflation is controlled by costs by China, by energy, whatever. Now what they're trying to do is they're trying to overcompensate for having been exposed as being spoofers. Mm. And that's why they're getting all hawkish, right? Okay. Because that they know the game is inflation will come down cyclically as a function of all these mm. costs we're talking about, right? If inflation comes down and real interest rates are very, very high, the central bankers will take credit for it. What well, I was going to say, That's, they're kind of going, about, it's coming down because of us. You, yeah, you see? But, it's you see? To do the, but yeah. when inflation comes down, let's say next year, mm. and real interest rates are very high, they will make the equation, or they will equate their activities of high real interest rates to slaying the inflation dragon. Okay? <laughs> yeah. But we on the David McWilliams podcast know otherwise <laughs> that all they're doing, it's it's... It's, you know, the way they, they call in rugby, I've been watching now recently, right? Yeah. And rugby and analysts, I quite like listening to rugby analysts because they use this really weird lexicon that I don't understand. Right. But they talk about showing a picture to the referee, right? So they're saying that very clever players can actually in a mall or in a rook or whatever, right? Yeah. Be actually behaving badly. But the picture they show to the referee by virtue of the way in which they position their bodies, by virtue of the way they obfuscate and they obscure, yeah. allows the referee to be a little bit, it's a very interesting thing, to mm. show the picture to the referee, allows the referee to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? right. <laughs> so imagine now central bankers are all about now optics and showing a picture yeah. to the people. There's no VAR there. There's no VAR, right? Yeah. And that picture will be when inflation falls, right, which is much more a function of Ukraine and China and all these sort of things, right, the picture they will show is high real interest rates. And in so doing, they will obscure the real truth. They will mislead the public. Mm. And their big fear is that their independent mandates, which they fought for generations to secure, 
will be taken back off them when politicians realize they don't really control the game. So they're showing a picture to the politicians and the population that is they that are actually on top of inflation. When we actually know that all they're doing is optics. So the Dave McWilliams podcast looks at central bankers, says you guys are spoofing. High real interest rates. The problem with high real interest rates, John, is that high real interest rates have a cost. And that cost is higher unemployment. And so in order to create and engender and bolster their credibility, they are very happy to allow unemployment to be greater than it should otherwise be simply because they want to keep their jobs. So we are the economics VAR. Oh, I love it. VAR. How are you doing there? Just a quick shout out for our Patreon supporters who keep supporting us and John, keep the lights on, I suspect. Absolutely. And in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to be putting together a new course at Trinity and I will be sharing that course with you on Patreon over the next month or two. So watch out. Follow us, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.